Just a note, this episode includes graphic violence. Gentlemen, it's time for Run, Bambi, Run. An Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. Let's consider each murder one by one. So you pretended he was dead. That's how you were able to kill him later, unobserved. That's right. He was the missing person in the kitchen after we found the cook dead. In movies, like Clue, murders are presented as puzzles, like a game. You're given just enough hints to deduce who the killer is, if you're clever. And it's really satisfying to try to figure it out before the inspector. That's when the cook was killed. How did he do it? I didn't. But you don't expect us to believe that, do you? I expect you to believe it. You killed the cook. (laughs) Agatha Christie is the best-selling novelist of all time. She specialized in this exact thing, Puzzle mysteries, they're called, or whodunits. They're stories with clear rules, clear suspects, and they often take place in a confined location. So there's nowhere to hide. They're stuck in a snowdrift on the Orient Express. They're stranded on an island without a boat, which means the murderer is always there in plain sight. He or she is always one of the main characters, waiting to be found out. Elementary, my dear Watson. Of course, in real life, there's nothing tidy or amusing about homicide. As we're about to find out. This is Run Bambi Run, an Apple original podcast from Campside Media. I'm Vanessa Gregoriadis, and this is episode four. This is kind of what Milwaukee would have looked like when Lori was here. Mm-hmm. In Milwaukee, in the 70s and 80s, all the cops lived on the south side. It's all ranch houses, low to the ground, and big, broad streets. Chris Radish is giving me a tour. Nothing has changed. You know, you got these pre-war homes here, mm-hmm. you know. Neat, neatly kept, very close together. And we are now at the Ramsey location, which is Christine and Fred's house. My first impression of the house on Ramsey Avenue, where Christine and Fred lived before the divorce, is it kind of looks like a German chalet. Two stories with a brown and white crisscross look on the facade. Like it should be on a mountaintop somewhere, but instead it's hard up against a freeway. It's unassuming and nondescript. But Chris is about to tell me the grisly story of what happened here. Christine Schultz, who I believe was 30 at the time, she was in her yard puttering in the garden, thinking about summer head. In Wisconsin, when spring pops its head, it's like, oh, thank heavens. And for her, being in the garden was a great break from the other worries of her life. She was raising two young boys after what was apparently an incredibly brutal divorce. Her new boyfriend was Stu Honick. He just lived a few blocks away. Christine's new boyfriend, Stu Honick, was also a cop. He was an animal lover with a big, bushy mustache. Later that night, Honick showed up around 6 p.m. to help her rototill the garden. And finally, late, about 7.30, she went in to cook him and her boy's dinner. They had a few drinks, which seems to be par for the course. I think they were drinking vodka gimlets. And it was really late when they finished eating and the boys started to get ready for bed. Hanek apparently left for a bit. 
the boys were sleeping in the same bed that night because Shannon always had nightmares. He would lay in bed and then he would just start to speak and his brother would say, all right, come on down. So the boys slept together. Christine went in to say goodnight to her boys, had a little chat with them, and then she put on a yellow t-shirt, some white underpants, turned on the television set for some bedtime company, threw a little sheet over the top of her in a light blanket, and tried to fall asleep and forget about her ex-husband and all the things her kids were asking her about when they could see him again. Divorce. It's complicated, especially when there are kids involved. They were probably asking about the young blonde their dad was dating and why their dad's friend Stu Honick was spending so much time at their house. Yes, Christine's new boyfriend, Stu Honick, was once Disco Fred's good friend. Whodunits may have a closed circle of suspects, but Milwaukee seems like it had a closed circle of dating options. Schultz wasn't happy about the dating scene that his wife was involved in. He didn't like Honick anymore. That's Chris Radish and Lori's POV. We don't have Fred's because he didn't talk to us for this podcast. And we'll get back to the night of the murder in a second. But we want to make sure you have the lay of the land. So Chris says she thinks Fred was pissed. Here's his ex-friend shagging his ex-wife in his house while he's still shelling out alimony. He kept telling Christine that Hanuk had drinking problems, had been married two times, and that she should stay away from him. So Hanek was a guy who had an apartment that Fred then crashed in, basically, after he left Christine. Yeah. Don't you think that's kind of messed up from Hanek's perspective to start dating Christine when yeah, his friend is crashing with him after the divorce? It seems like just the whole incestuous police department, okay, you had her, now it's my turn. I, I never did quite understand it. So Fred and Lori aren't exactly going on disco bowling nights with Christine and Stu. It was awkward, especially because Lori's annoyed about the alimony thing, too. Fred was paying almost 700 bucks a month in 1980s dollars. And Fred and Lori were just making ends meet. I'm the same way. I'll, I'll probably, my last thought will be, oh my God, can I pay the gas bill this week? But I also think that's part of our middle class Wisconsin culture. You work really hard. You're always worried about money. Still, Lori and Fred are in the early stages of their relationship. They're smooching around, all lovey-dovey, talking about the future. It was becoming this conservative life that Lori never thought she'd have. And it was the two of them against the world. Well, not exactly just the two of them. They still had that roommate, French-speaking Judy Zess, who, incidentally, had met another swaggering Midwestern dude while she was getting a tan at the pool. This new boyfriend, Tom Gartner, is a piece of work. For starters, he's a hardcore bodybuilder. In the true 1980s style, the poofy pants, the tank tops, muscles on top of shiny steroid muscles. Let's get pumped up for this year, Mr. USA! I mean, look at the abdominals on this guy. He's got the delts, the quads, the whole package. The good news, I guess, is he wasn't a cop. The bad news? Mr. USA was also a drug dealer. Lori opened the fridge to get a beer one night and thought, whoa, either this guy really loves oregano or we've got ourselves a fridge full of weed. He always claimed to have been living on an inheritance, but his inheritance really was a flourishing drug business. So that was (laughs) Mr. Tom's 
M.O. So it's quite a cast of characters that Lori has gotten herself wrapped up with. It's a scene, you could say, that seems like it's spinning out of control. Shady characters, marijuana in the fridge, a bunch of guys all mad at each other, and they all have guns. And everyone is partying. Judy threw a huge party that got her in trouble and got all three of them evicted. So Lori and Fred, amid all this craziness, had to find a new apartment. And then, not too long after that, was the night that changed Lori's life and a lot of other lives forever. Which brings us back to Christine Schultz, who's just trying to get some sleep with her kids on Ramsey Avenue. It's May 28th, 1981. The boys fell asleep, and Christine fell asleep. But just before 2 a.m., someone, maybe more than someone, slipped into the locked home, and it didn't look like anybody broke in. So it had to be somebody who had a key. The oldest son, Sean, was not fully asleep, and he heard something, and then suddenly felt something tight around his neck, maybe a rope or a wire. Then his nose and his mouth were completely covered, and he began to struggle. He pulled off whatever was on his neck, terrified, and started to scream. Someone, a huge figure, was standing by the bed, and Shannon jumped out of bed and started kicking the person. It was a large man with a reddish ponytail and a green jacket. The man suddenly moved away, ran down the hall and into their mother's room, and the terrified boys just hung there for a few minutes, didn't know what to do. The next thing they heard was their mother screaming, please don't do that. And then something that sounded like a firecracker to them went off. Shannon ran to the door of his bedroom, saw the man who had been in his room just a few minutes ago, standing over the bed where his mother was lying. And then the man quickly ran out past him down the hall. He remembers seeing that the man jumped down the steps three or four at a time And Shannon saw his jacket flapping as he jumped and noticed that he had on black shoes. Both boys quickly ran into their mother's bedroom. She was lying face down on the bed. Her left hand had a cord wrapped around it. Somebody had put a gag over her mouth and some kind of scarf wrapped around her head. Terrified, Sean immediately tried to stop the bleeding. Shannon stood and watched his brother, shivering in the cold. He had no idea what was going on. But what had just happened is that both of the boys had witnessed their mother's murder. It was 2.20 a.m. Sean ran to the phone, and he called Stu Honick, Christine's boyfriend. Stu tried to calm the boy down, and then he called the cops. And from all over the city, the police stopped whatever they were doing. Patrolling, partying, drinking, whatever— If they were sleeping on the job, they rubbed the sleep out of their eyes and they headed to Ramsey Avenue. Because this wasn't just any shooting. It was in the family. We got the call and I was driving there with my lights on in the wee hours of the morning. That's our producer, Mark. He's reading a statement from Lyle Lance, the EMT who was one of the first people on the scene. Lance didn't want to go on tape. A police car went zooming by, and I don't know who it was, but he was definitely over the speed limit. We went inside, and Christine was lukewarm. She didn't have a pulse. We weren't going to start CPR or do anything, but the paramedics came later and put the paddles on her just to confirm that she was really gone. I was the one who pronounced her dead. Across town, Fred was working the night shift. 
According to this giant stack of police records that I have here, and I do mean giant, they fill six spiral binders. Fred responded to one burglary. The thief had taken a rack of spare ribs, a TV, and some eggs. In other words, a slow night. In fact, Fred and his partner for the evening, Michael Durfee, stopped in a bar for some drinks, as you do. The spot was named Georgie's Pub and Grub. Here's George Marks, the owner. It was a real nice-looking bar, you know, and like a um, TGIF, you know, put a bunch of stuff up against the wall, played good music. It was like a Cheers. In the Cheers analogy, George Marks would be Sam, the bartender character, and the cops are the guys who waddle in each night and take their usual seats at the bar. They used to get all goofy and shit like that. This particular night, Fred and Durfee actually grabbed George Marks from Georgie's. We went bar hopping. <laughs> we went to a bar, was called Hunters, which was up the road for me. Uh, where I happened to know the owner, too. We were friends at the time. We went there. And anyways, the guys took me back to my place. They went off, you know, to check in. I don't know it was the end of their shift or whatever it was. So this sounds like a fun night. But when Fred and Durfee made their way back to the station, the radio started bleeding out something strange about a shooting in Fred's former neighborhood. It was on Ramsey Avenue, across the street from the house he'd built. It was rare to get a false alarm from that neighborhood, the South Side. That's where cops lived, and they didn't make fake calls. But then Fred got another call, telling him to call the captain's office. The color drained from his face, because the address he'd heard first was wrong. This murder actually happened at his house, 1701 Ramsey, and it was Christine. Fred sped over to the scene of the crime. It was alive with lights, flashing blue and red, just sirens coming in from everywhere, swarming with cops, yelling orders every which way, bumping into each other. It wasn't the buttoned-up crime scene you would expect. It was a shit show. There was a night inspector there who seemed like a rookie. He was freaking out one of the cops. His name is David Kane. Our producer, Mark, will read from David's book. He told us he didn't want the body in the house with the two young boys there. My partner and I were just speechless. We knew that it would be us, not him, that would get the criticism later on if the scene wasn't properly processed. But we had no choice but to comply. My partner spotted a long strand of hair on the victim's leg. He took a set of tweezers and recovered the strand and put it in an envelope. cops started spinning theories. They figured that someone broke into the house. Two guys, maybe. Fred and Christine's kids, Sean and Shannon, they had competing versions of what the killer looked like. One of the kids said it was a man with a green jogging suit. He had a ponytail, and he was wearing the kind of shoes that cops wear, actually. Those smooth black dress shoes. The other kid said something a little different. He said the killer was wearing an army jacket. Not a jogging suit. An army jacket. Christine's body was found in the clothes she'd gone to bed in. No tears in the underwear, so it didn't look like a rape. It was probably a robbery, they said. Even though Christine's purse was still out in view with 53 bucks in it and some uncashed checks. The stereo had been moved around a little bit, unplugged, but nothing else seems to have been missing. Something was amiss, though. There was a safe hidden in the den, or as they called it, the music appreciation room. The kids weren't allowed to go in there. Christine kept her supplies for bookkeeping in the safe. Notebook, checkbook, that kind of stuff, but 
who knows what else. And this safe seemed tampered with. A metal box that was usually inside of it was out in full view. So whoever entered the house might have had the combination or got Christine to open the safe before they killed her. But what's missing from the safe? Nobody knows. Dead body, crack safe, mysterious disappearance. This is classic whodunit stuff. So where was Lori all this time? She says she was at home all night by herself. As we said before, she was getting ready to move out of their apartment. She was packing up some of their belongings into moving boxes, and she was supposed to go out with a girlfriend to a nightclub, a place in Milwaukee called the Tropicana for ladies' night. Patricia Lipsy, Lori's friend from the Academy. One time, we, I had so many drinks, I couldn't drink all of that. And I left about six or seven drinks on the table. And unfortunately, her friend canceled at the last minute was the one night she should have gone out drinking. Instead, Lori says she stayed home, alone. She was annoyed they had to move. And after cleaning and packing an entire apartment, she was physically and mentally exhausted. As she was getting into bed, Fred called to check in, which, from Lori's perspective, was nothing out of the ordinary for needy and possessive disco Fred. He checked on her a lot, like almost like he was babysitting her, making sure that she wasn't gone, or if she was gone, she was home at the specific time. But later, when the phone rang at 2.45 a.m., Lori was half asleep. He was breathing really heavily, like he had been running or something. He sounded really upset. He was all choked up as he spoke. He said she, he wanted to make sure that she was still alive, which she found very odd until he said he thought someone might be coming to get her, to hurt her, because he had just heard that somebody had slipped into his old house and killed his ex-wife, Christine. I was really sleepy, and I thought for a second that he was joking because, I mean, cops do joke about everything. Now, Lori was wide awake, and she was freaking out. She called Joanne, her friend from grade school. It was the middle of the night, and I was dead asleep. I answered the phone. The phone was next to my bed, and she was crying. And she goes, get up, wake up. She said, Christine's been shot, and Christine's been killed. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? And she said, Fred's ex-wife, Christine, she's been shot. And I got up and I went, oh, my God. And I remember going into the other room in the living room, talking with her about it for a few minutes. And she said, well, Fred's coming to pick me up and we're going to go identify the body. At 6.30 a.m., and this is from official records, Fred showed up at their apartment with Durfee, his partner for the night, and his drinking buddy from Georgie's. But it didn't seem like he was just there to pick Lori up. And she wasn't ready to go anyway. She was wearing her fuzzy robe, just sort of shell-shocked. And weirdly, all she could think about was her own future. I mean, she was just at the beginning of building a life with Fred. And that life did not include his kids. Who was going to take care of them? Fred's mom? His sister? Or was it all going to fall on her? Because she had no desire to be a stepmother. Outside, Fred and Durfee pulled up in what the cops called a Y-10, an unmarked patrol car. Fred asked Durfee to do something before they went inside. He had Durfee go over to Lori's Camaro and place his hand on the hood to check the temperature. It was cool to the touch, meaning the car hadn't been driven anywhere. 
which implied that Lori hadn't left the house that night. Lori hadn't thought of it yet, but perhaps Fred knew she'd have to be considered a suspect. And maybe he was trying to put an end to that line of questioning. As soon as they said hi to Lori, she and Fred talked privately for a few minutes. Then, according to records from Michael Durfee, Fred left the room. When he returned, he had a gun with him. It was his off-duty gun that he kept at home in his dresser drawer. A Smith & Wesson five-shot, two-inch revolver, bluish finish. A thirty-eight. It was a snub nose. It would fit in the palm of anybody's hand really easily. So they're light, they're powerful, they're attractive to people who like weapons because they're usually silver and with lovely handles. Lori figured, so what? Somebody gets murdered? You have to check all the guns. Simple as that. Normal police procedure. Fred handed the gun to Durfee so he could examine it. And sure enough, Durfee concluded that it had not been fired that night. It was dusty. There was no carbon residue, and it didn't have the telltale smell of a recently fired gun. So Fred's off-duty gun, the dresser drawer gun, the one that was at home with Lori that night, it wasn't the murder weapon. It couldn't be. Unfortunately, Durfee, when he handed the gun back to Fred, he never wrote down the serial numbers. I think that's a really important thing to note. Maybe Durfee was just exhausted and forgot? Maybe? But also, when people in authority asked to see his notebook later, Durfee didn't have it to show to them. He said he lost it. I tried to call Durfee to see what he had to say about this night because who was home with the gun and which gun it was would become hugely important to solving this crime. We found his number in a public database. Hello? Oh, hi. Can I speak with Michael Durfee? Uh, who's this? My name is Vanessa. And you represent? And I, <laughs> well, I am a podcaster, and I am making a podcast series about the Lori Bembenek trial. Oh, that's okay. I don't talk about that. Um, we tried to get in touch with Officer Durfee again, but he let the phone go to voicemail. Christine Schultz was laid to rest in a cemetery in Appleton. She was in a pink coffin to match the pink roses around her. The mourners included Fred, of course, with Lori at his side, feeling wildly out of place. It wasn't just that she was at the funeral of her husband's ex-wife. She was surrounded by the very police department she was trying to expose. Some of the very guys she might even have naked pictures of. During the buffet, and this is from Lori's telling, Fred disappeared into the bar. Lori sat with his kids because they were the only ones who would sit with her. Christine's boyfriend, Stu Honick, stood nearby, receiving condolences. It was an open casket, and a lot of people started to notice the jewelry that Christine was about to be buried with. At the funeral, she had an engagement ring on her hand from him, which was kind of shocking because everyone knew that they weren't engaged and that he wanted to marry her. He was fond of her, perhaps in love with her, But she hadn't agreed to marry him. They had talked about it. But Christine was like, I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. She hadn't been divorced that long. She had dated some other men. And so the ring was a shocker for people who knew that they really weren't engaged. Now get this. The reason that Stu might have wanted people to think he was engaged to Christine is Chief Harold Breyer. 
Remember when I was talking earlier about all of Breyer's crazy rules like no sideburns, no bankruptcy, all that stuff? Well, it turns out that Breyer had even more rules, believe it or not, about his officers' sex lives. Let's go back to Lori's friend at the Academy for a second, Linda Reeves. She found the whole thing bizarre. There was a morals cost back in the day. You couldn't live with nobody. You couldn't have this. You couldn't have that. A morals clause, huh? Apparently, cops weren't allowed to have sex outside of marriage, and definitely not with someone else's wife. Chief Harold Breyer, control freak that he was, wanted it to be the 50s in his department, which, oddly, might explain the mystery ring that Christine was wearing in the casket. I asked Chris Radish about it. So who put that ring on and why? Stu Honick, I'm sure, did. I'm sure he bought it. He wanted to profess his love for her. I mean, they had been dating and obviously had been very serious. He'd spent a lot of time there. They were together often. And this was the woman that was in his life. But also maybe because the police department had, like, rules about who could <laughs> who could date, right? Yeah. Because he would have had access to the body, right? right? But why would he do that? Well, I, th- I also think that there was such animosity between Stu and Fred, but also my God, the woman he was dating was murdered. Mm -hmm. So maybe he already had the ring. He -hmm. never did say, but it could be one of two things. It could be just a genuine affection for her. He was mourning, but it could also be a way for him to have Fred look at the body and go, there you go, buddy. I got her anyway. It's just creepy. That's what Chris Radish says. To her, it was two grown men having a pissing contest over a murdered woman. Chris says Lori was disgusted by the whole thing, but that Fred, a detective himself, he wouldn't let it go. It seemed like he was pissed off about the ring for two reasons. One, he didn't think that Christine wanted to marry Stu at all. And two, Lori says, he wasn't sure that Stu Honick didn't kill her. In a murder mystery, once you have a body, the cops are supposed to start doing their due diligence. And that's exactly what happened here. They interviewed the neighbors, ran the prints, all the things. The night of the murder, when they'd cased the blocks near Ramsey Avenue, they even interviewed a guy who was weirdly sitting in a stopped truck on the side of the freeway, right near Christine and Fred's house. But the cops didn't come up with anything they thought promising, probably because they had such a narrow focus. Now, I'm not saying the detectives in Milwaukee were big Agatha Christie fans or anything, But they really did seem to think that they were working with a closed circle of suspects. As far as they were concerned, it lined up like this. You've got Christine's hot-headed ex-husband, Disco Fred Schultz. After a whirlwind romance, he's now married to Lori. And supposedly, he hates paying alimony. Then you got Lori. She's not just the younger, newer wife. She's an ex-cop and a pretty aggressive enemy of the police department. And you can't forget Stu Honick, the bushy-mustached animal lover. Boyfriends always make the list of possible suspects. They're usually at the top. Plus, he was the last one to see Christine alive. And you got Judy Zess, Lori and Disco Fred's 'er ne'er-do-well roommate, who seems to be at the middle of everything. Not to mention Judy's boyfriend, Tom, Mr. USA, the one with the fridge full of pot. He was the sketchiest of all these sketchy folks. But get this, just days before the killing, Mr. USA had been taken down. 
So Judy's boyfriend, Mr. USA, had just been arrested for distributing cocaine. What a sweet little relationship that was. Oh my gosh. So yeah, the cops crossed Mr. USA off their list. Being locked up is a rock-solid alibi. The detectives gathered the remaining suspects, and they asked them to submit to a polygraph. A good old-fashioned lie detector. People put a lot of faith in polygraphs in the 80s. They were like these little psychic truth-telling machines. Or at least, that's how people saw them. All they really measure are things like heart rate and sweat. So one by one, the suspects got ready to be hooked up to the needles. At the last minute, Judy Zess decided she didn't want to take the polygraph. But no surprise there. She's always doing something sketchy. Stu Honick had a rock-solid alibi. Nothing to worry about. I'd imagine Fred was a bit weirded out. But since he was a cop himself, maybe he felt like he had to do it. He'd been with Durfee all night, so he certainly didn't implicate himself. But Lori... She refused to take the test altogether. Which seems nuts. But you have to put yourself in the mindset of a 22-year-old woman who couldn't see past her own problems. She was worried that if she hooked up to the lie detector, they'd throw in a bunch of questions about her discrimination suit or the naked tracks photos or something else that might mess up her case. That's where her head was at. Still, if I could interview Lori... I would definitely have to ask her, if you didn't kill Christine Schultz, then what were you thinking, refusing the polygraph? It's hard to imagine how Lori didn't realize how bad that would make her look. In a lifetime of mistakes, that one really sticks out. So detectives had to step back and take a big look at the case, asking the obvious questions. The same ones investigators raise at the climax of a classic whodunit. Who had the motive to want Christine dead? Who didn't have an alibi? Who didn't take the lie detector? And I'll throw in a question of my own, which is maybe the most important one. Who was a giant pain in Chief Harold Breyer's ass? Next time on Run, Baby, Run. She had means, she had opportunity. I believe she murdered somebody. Tell me the truth. If you did it, I don't care. She came to the door wearing a white negligee and peignoir. Is it a fact that uh, you, in fact, bought a wig from that ye old wig world? No. Well, the whole wig episode is absolutely ridiculous. No woman in her right mind would put anything besides a piece of Kleenex or a Tampax down a toilet. All rise. This court of the state of Wisconsin is now in session. Run Baby Run is an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. It was created and executive produced by Mark McAdam and me, Vanessa Grigoriadis. Our producers are Sam Leeds and Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Ashley Ann Krigbaum is our managing producer. Our researcher is Alex Yablon and our archivist is Megan Shuve. Field production by Emily Files, archival from the movie Clue. Campside Media's executive producers are Josh Dean, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and myself. Special thanks to executive producer Kyle Long and to Campside's operations team, Amanda Brown, Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. And finally, thanks so much to Chris Radish, who wrote the book Run Bambi Run. If you're enjoying this show, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. 
thank you so much for listening.